This episode is brought to you by Watchmen on HBO. The first season of Watchmen was hailed by critics as drop-dead fantastic, breathtaking, and like nothing else on television. For your Golden Globe consideration in all nominated categories, Watchmen on HBO. Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast for culture and entertainment media. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... James Mangold, the director of the new film, Ford v. Ferrari. When I was a kid, there was a lot of movies to see that were made for for people over 25 years old as their central audience. And kids came along and we understood what we understood and we what we didn't understand, we asked our parents about. I miss those movies. I mean, now movies of scope are almost entirely generated and built from the ground up for children. Adults don't get those kind of movies. There aren't any Lawrence of Arabia's anymore. And that is a tragedy. I saw in this the dynamism that I could flex the muscles I have with action. At the same time, I could be doing intimate work, dramatic work, character work that is kind of my bread and butter. That's coming up. But first, I'm here with Glenn Whip to talk about some culture news. Thanks for being here, Glenn. You bet, Mark. And now we're lucky we're going to have you this week twice for two segments. You're going to be here for your regular awards moment, which is coming up right after this. But I really want to talk to you first about what you've been up to over the last week or so. Comedian Louis C.K. has announced dates for a New World Tour. You've actually followed him on his tour. This follows Louis C.K.'s admission of sexual misconduct back in 2017. So what's going on with him now? Well, he, after about a year of playing comedy clubs kind of rebooted his website and launched a kind of a comeback tour, which is taking him not to big cities, nothing against Raleigh or Richmond or Dubuque. He's playing somewhere in Slovakia. He is back on tour and doing his set. He's kind of staying away from cities, it would seem like, that might protest his appearance. And in his set, he notes that uh, New York has turned on him and he now hates New York right back just as much. How many shows of his did you see? And how did how did this material go over in those rooms? I saw two shows in Richmond, Virginia. And then I traveled south to Raleigh, North Carolina. So he's playing like 2,000-seat theaters instead of Madison Square Garden and the Forum. So the size of the venues have gone down. The shows were pretty much sold out, although the, there were still tickets for the North Carolina show. There was, there was definitely evidence that ticket brokers in that region had overestimated the demand for Louis C.K. tickets. I bought my ticket for the first Richmond show off of Vivid Seats, a seat reseller. I bought it for $4, and it's a $49.50 ticket. And even before the Raleigh show, you could go on Vivid Seats and score a pair of orchestra tickets for like 10 bucks a piece, or $9 a piece, actually. After the allegations came out, he released something of an apology, and he did acknowledge that the, you know, the allegations against him were true, and he said at the time that he was going to step back, take time to listen, and it seems like it's not been very long. First of all, there's, there's very little evidence in his new show that he actually listened. I mean, if anything, he seems to have 
just doubled down on being an asshole. Can I say asshole on this podcast? I think so. Yeah, why not? I mean, what was always interesting about CK was that he was this offensive, vulgar comedian, but he also gave off the appearance of trying to be a decent human being, too. So there's this dichotomy. I have these thoughts. These thoughts are in my head, but I'm trying to also be a good dad, be a good man, be a good human being. And now in his new show, it's pretty much he's just being an asshole. And does he directly address the allegations against him or what sort of has happened to him? So, yeah, he says, well, you know, it's been a weird couple of years. How's your last couple of years been? He also kind of goes into a thing about, you know, women have this, he calls it a skill of being able to seem okay when things are not really okay. I think the old Louis C.K. would have investigated that. He would have looked at the ways that that women have to put on this facade, that society dictates that. Why is that? But he doesn't really get into that. He needs to instead spend 20 minutes. He says 20 minutes. It's not really 20, thankfully, about why it's no longer okay to say the word retarded. And did the material play well to the room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, those who were there, he was greeted by many with the standing ovation. The material was very well received. The Raleigh show in particular, the crowd was just with him every step of the way. Even when he was talking about, you know, this weird last couple of years and how it's not been so great for him, people were clapping and very supportive of him. You know, some people yelling out, we love you, Louie. The material played really well. So yeah, it was that people were laughing in all the right places all the wrong places, depending on your sensibility, and it was well-received. For the rest of us, what do you think the lessons to be learned here are? Like, in <laughs> looking at, like, the mysterious case of Louis C.K., what's the lesson we can draw from him? You know, I mean, he's not the first comedian. As Aziz Ansari came back uh, in July with a Netflix special, and he was touring. He was the on the, on the receiving end of a, an online story, which was basically... Uh, bad date, a date gone awry. He came back. He didn't really talk about it initially and then started to talk about it in a way that was apologetic, in a way that was honest, felt honest. And he kind of bookended his act with that. I don't know that Louis C.K. needs to, but I think if he ever wants to have a Netflix special again, or an HBO special, or any kind of larger life in popular culture beyond just playing pockets of America that are sympathetic to him, he might need to evolve a little bit. And I think that'll do it. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us to tell us about your adventures following around Louis C.K. Thank you, Mark. And listeners can read more about this in Glenn's full story online at latimes.com. And it will also be in this Sunday's print edition of the LA Times. And now, it's time for Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. A couple of months ago, I was flying home from the Toronto Film Festival, and I was seated next to a guy who worked for another publication, and we were talking about what movies might hit this Oscar season. And he was saying his boss thought Jojo Rabbit was going to win Best Picture. And I looked at him, 
And I thought, that person is insane. Jojo Rabbit is not even going to be nominated for Best Picture. And then I got home, and then the Toronto Film Festival announced its winner of the People's Choice Award, which is the audience is voting on what they think is Best Picture. Ten of the last 11 winners of this award have been nominated for Best Picture. And this year, the winner, Jojo Rabbit, which made me rethink everything I thought I knew about this movie. In case you don't know Jojo Rabbit, it's about a 10-year-old Nazi whose best friend is an imaginary goofball Hitler, and he falls in love with a Jewish girl, and he kind of learns the error of his ways. And if that sounds like a movie that shouldn't work, you're right, but a lot of people love this movie and think it absolutely works. I guess I'm not one of them. Jojo Rabbit is going to be my Oscar blind spot this year. I could go on. I could keep writing about Jojo Rabbit this whole award season, saying mean things, like I said in my column this week. I tried not to be too mean, but I'm admitting, I'm, I'm confessing right now, that this is going to be my blind spot this Oscar season. Just putting it out there right now. I, I know a lot of you love Jojo Rabbit. I, probably has a special place in your hearts. I hear you. I acknowledge that. And I'm just putting it out there right now. It's going to be my blind spot this Oscar season. Thank you, Glenn. We're going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Barry on HBO. Critics are raving that the second season is the best show on television and audaciously original. For your Golden Globe consideration in all nominated categories, Barry on HBO. Welcome back. Now I'm joined by James Mangold, the director of the new film, Ford v. Ferrari. James, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. And so this is the story of Matt Damon stars as Carol Shelby, Christian Bale as Ken Miles, the story of the Le Mans auto race of 1966. Why make this movie now? Well, I guess, first of all, I'm never charting my course from a kind of aerial vantage point. So it's more just about what I'm attracted to and then what happens. You know, I, I was for a few months writing and working on a Patty Hearst movie that fell apart. And uh, and I was also developing this at the same time. I didn't know which one would happen. This film I've been attracted to since 2010 or 2011, but it's always been tied up with other directors and the script in other forms. But the story I always wanted to try and take a shot at. And that was mainly... I felt because the characters were just so powerful, unique, charming, irreverent. It seemed such fertile ground for a, a kind of adult-themed action picture. You know, and the other thing that really attracted me was when I learned more about this story, it was how the race unwinds. It's not really the story of the 66 Le Mans as much as I think it's the story of the development of this car culminating in that race. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of screen time given in the years preceding 66 in the movie. Watching this unique band of characters get pulled together on this job, that was also fascinating to me. The world of, of car racing at that moment, specifically in the in Southern California world, was such a great mix of veterans, engineers from the military, hot rodders, kind of hippies and beatniks, biker characters, racing characters, sportsmen, car fanatics, movie stars who all want to look cool and get you know, drag racers. It's such an interesting world that, you know, one of the interesting things as we did research for the movie is how many of the older car guys we met, you know, knew George Lucas because he had slept on their couch, you know, as a kind of hot rodder and car fiend back in that day. 
You've worked in such a wide span of genres at this point, especially when you've been talking about Logan. You so often were talking about it as this sort of combination of a superhero movie and a Western and sort of a character study. With this film, was that part of the appeal as well, the way that you were having this racing picture, but also this really sort of intense character drama alongside it? I feel like I'm always trying to make movies that somehow continue some feeling I had when I was a young man going to the movies with my dad. And I would go to see pictures that were inviting and entertaining, but also thought-provoking and had scope. That, you know, when I was a kid, there was a lot of movies to see that were made for people over 25 years old as their central audience. And kids came along. And we understood what we understood and we what we didn't understand we asked our parents about. I miss those movies. I mean, now movies of scope are almost entirely generated and built from the ground up for children. Adults don't get those kind of movies. There aren't any Lawrence of Arabias anymore. And that is a tragedy. I saw in this the dynamism that I could flex the muscles I have with action at the same time I could be doing intimate work, dramatic work, character work that is kind of my bread and butter, what I've been doing since, you know, Heavy, my first film in 96. People have been describing the movie as classical and old-fashioned or a throwback, and there's a way in which those seem like they could be kind of backhanded compliments, but you've really embraced that. Well, why not? I mean, I don't think they're saying that in any sense as a pejorative, but I do think it reveals something about our own current culture that a movie that's just telling a story for adults about interesting characters who love their families and care about each other somehow seems so, in some ways, antiquated or classical that it just shows you how far we've come in movies in the sense that we don't make them for grown-ups anymore. We do, I mean, but they're on Netflix or there are other places, but that a big screen film playing on the big screen. I mean, my agent told me when this film was greenlit, he goes, enjoy making this one. It's the last one you may ever make. And he meant it. It was a little bit in jest, but I think the whole business feels like these movies are so rare. Um, and they once were the mainstay of popular entertainment. And so I think that plays a role in, in it. I am also conservative as a filmmaker. I'm a fan of other filmmakers who do things differently. But in my own sense of myself, I'm not out to get in front of my story. Meaning I feel like a lot of contemporary movies, the directors manage to enlist folks like yourself or the kind of press machine in general or fandom, Twitterdom into the idea of art making on the screen as the director needs to be saying, look at me the whole time. And I'm a fan of directors as varied as Martin Ritt, uh, Mike Nichols, or Sidney Lumet, or even Steven Spielberg seems conservative at this point in the face of kind of the effort to make movies that are endless wonders that we almost as directors we need to be able to enter our press phase of our motion picture making to be able to describe what we're doing that's never been done before in some kind of athletic gymnastic sense and that's never interested me i mean rope is not my favorite hitchcock movie and it's an interesting experiment but it's the films where he allowed himself to disappear a little more like shadow of a doubt which is the most beautifully written, I think, of some of his movies and beautifully acted. It doesn't mean I'm trying to be transparent, if that makes any sense. It just means I'm trying not to get in front 
of the story. And I think that in itself sometimes seems classical because in a generation that I've come up with a whole bunch of people, Quentin and all the people kind of in following Quentin with a kind of very self-referential movies about movies, movies about culture, kind of Warhol-esque movies in a sense. I don't do that. A lot of times people ask, what movies were you watching when you made this movie? And I'm always like, I don't know what movies was John Ford watching when he made his movies. Uh, you know, it's like this, as if if you make a Western, you have to watch Westerns. Because my, it, it, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but the thing is, if you make a movie watching movies, then you're making a movie about movies, about people. And I try and make movies about people. So I'm trying to kind of separate this whole idea that we're always quoting and that art in and of itself by definition in cinema has to be somehow everything is an homage or a quote of another picture. Given that you're saying that making a movie with two huge movie stars about race cars is a difficult proposition, what do you do with that? How do you as a filmmaker sort of respond to the lay of the land in contemporary Hollywood? Well, I do what I've been doing. Like I, I managed with Logan to kind of, at least to my own satisfaction, use the opportunity of making a film about a beloved figure as a kind of, as leverage in a sense, the same way one might use a movie star in an, another age to get you the leverage to have tremendous creative freedom. And that's my only bone to pick. I mean, I, I love what Marty's championing right now. But I, my only bone to pick is that I think it's really not about comic book movies versus other movies as much as that the whole business is market tested. I mean, you could say that about romantic comedies. You could say it about, I mean, we, we could reduce almost, almost 90% of the movies we see to feeling like market tested types. And we've just gone so accustomed that we accept it. And I do think it's great that someone's ringing the bell about that. But I don't think that every filmmaker enters a film, whether it's based on a Marvel character or a great novel or any other source material, necessarily with the idea that they're making a market tested picture that's unnatural. I think it's about the freedom you have. Logan, you asked me why Logan and that it was, I sensed a tremendous freedom. I couldn't make a movie like that without, if, if there was a John Wayne and it was 30 years ago, maybe I could have, but there isn't that kind of built-in audience for any movie star anymore. But there was and is to some degree for these characters. So my thing was just, can I make a movie about Logan in which I say, to hell with the universe, to hell with this locking in and forming some kind of large cinematic uh, miniseries with all the other movies to hell with all of it just make my movie make a movie about this character what i would do if nothing existed before i started and i got the chance to do that 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 also gave me the resources to make a, a interesting kind of film i thought and that's what i'm always looking for i mean part of what i do is i have to look for opportunities as well as, and every director has to, it's how we pick our projects is what turns us on, but also what we can see. I've got to get you to leave your home and come out to a movie theater. There's lots of things that interest me that might not work for that, might not work for that essential barter I have to have with an audience. And so I'm acutely aware of having some kind of message, just like as if you were a politician, you want to speak the truth and you want to change the country in the right way, but you also have to find a way to say it that brings people out. And that when you're choosing a project, you're trying to find a way of, of 
either through provocation or it being a known quantity or having a kind of base audience that might show up for this kind of topic or world. You want to have some leverage or some kind of toehold on an audience or it's going to get very it's going to be very hard to get financing or make the movie. It's no accident that there's a way in which Ford v Ferrari feels like it's kind of a metaphor in a way that it's the story of two men making personal individual work from within inside of a industrialized it's, system. It, yes, and it's deeply I deeply connected with it on that level. I think that the effort to play in the big game but retain your own vision, it's not just the fight for vision, it's that in some ways not unlike the studios, they want your vision. They do want a voice. They want a filmmaker, because vision is kind of an odd word. Uh, it, it implies kind of a wet rag on your head and like you see the whole movie. They want your point of view. They want the film to have a point of view. Milos Forman was my teacher at Columbia University and he had this great thing he'd always say about projects when students would propose them to him and they seemed somehow like he had seen them before. He would say, don't tell me two and two is four. I know two and two is four. Why would you want to spend three years making a movie telling the audience two and two is four? Tell them two and two is five. And they will go, no, it isn't. And then that's what your movie is. You will show them why it is. And that you need to show them something they don't know or can't accept. You need to open their eyes to something new. And that is a kind of barometer or test I put on every project. What are we saying here that's interesting what are we bringing to you that's interesting? And certainly in Ford Ferrari, the art commerce battle in commingled with as a sports movie, the battle for a voice, for a point of view, and the fact that everybody is so codependent and so needs each other. I mean, Ford needs Carroll Shelby as much as they can't stand dealing with him. Ferrari kind of needs Ford in the sense that he was going bankrupt. The pursuit of perfectionism, I mean, it's like, you know, Ferrari is like zoetrope. You know, it's like, it's awesome, but he can't sustain it. He needs a new sponsor every few years because the pursuit of perfection without some kind of concept of, of where the money is going to come from is doomed. So it becomes a movie about art and capitalism, perfectionism and capitalism, because the sports world is kind of also, it's this turning point in the 60s where sports hadn't become what they are now in sponsorships and branding and television networks, deals and the level of money that exists now. I mean, all you have to do is visit Le Mans now and see what it was before. Le Mans now looks like the Staples Center writ large. It's a series of glass, gigantical buildings around a road that no longer resembles the country roads that the track once was, although it's the same ground. And now you mentioned Martin Scorsese and the surprisingly enduring conversation he has inspired about superhero movies, this sort of definition of what is cinema. In some ways, it gets to the existential heart of why make movies, what are movies for? Are these conversations you have with other filmmakers? No, I think it's. I think this is in part a kind of dialogue between the press and Marty and other filmmakers, but that it's not a... I don't completely understand it. I mean, in one sense. I definitely understand it in the sense that we're, I think... My perception, I said something about this at the Hollywood Film Awards, but I, I, my perception about it is that we really wouldn't be having this conversation if there was more screen real estate for all movies. That this is essentially a conversation that's happening in a refugee camp for filmmakers, meaning there aren't enough resources for everyone, so people are turning on one another. And that that's effectively what's going on as a social dynamic 
to this argument because the reality is, I mean, I've heard Marty wax poetic about the creature from the Black Lagoon, and I've heard Francis wax poetic about B-movies and cheesy movies of their youth. The problem is really that those B-movies have taken over all the real estate and the oxygen. I mean, the birth of cinema itself was the birth of a trashy art form that was poo-pooed by the elite as a kind of ridiculous pornographic medium until people like Chaplin and Keaton and others started to make art with it. And when Bob Dylan went electric, everyone went nuts and it was a perversion and a betrayal. And that's what this is. But it's again, what was that about for Dylan? It was about the fact that he was stealing the limelight from the folk movement. What is it about right now is that Marty's movie is is at the Belasco and then is going to be on TV in a month. That's what the frustration is about. Because I'm as in a full agreement that movies look too machined and tailored, not just movies, food, airline trips, television shows, everything feels market tested. I go in a Walmart, I get depressed because the whole experience for so many of us in our lives is now a kind of matrixized, pre-approved MSG at the proper level that you can't stop eating it or tasting it, kind of marketeer's perfection. And so do I recognize, do I feel numb when I see many movies, not just Marvel movies, many movies that seem to me to have everything unpredictable or raw shaved off of them? Yes. In all aspects, I turn on the radio. I feel nothing but just synthesized, crafted nuggets of ear candy that have nothing to say. So I think this is a cultural-wide problem, but not one that's going to be solved by being Mr. Wilson about it and just kvetching. I think it's about trying to hook audiences back into what unpredictable, more audacious art feels like. And I want to be sure to ask you about these two central performances in Ford v. Ferrari. I mean, both Matt Damon and Christian Bale just bring so much to these roles. When you're casting those parts, what are you looking for? Like, what is it you wanted from those two guys in these two parts? I literally thought of them as I was working on the script. I mean, the the I've known them both for 20 years. And Christian has so many overlaps with, with Ken Miles. I felt like we were even writing for Christian, whether he was on the movie or not. And Matt, I needed someone who could step in to Carol Shelby and capture that kind of swagger. And for me, I mean, I've always been a fan of Matt's work. I think he's a a phenomenal actor. But I also always remembered the turn he made in the Coen Brothers uh, remake of True Grit. And I thought he was so good. There was something about his swagger, his Texan, his kind of poise in that that made me really believe that, that he could find Carol. And they're also, Matt and Christian are different kinds of actors. And I have a kind of pet theory that different kinds of actors are really good together. Christian's kind of incendiary uh, actor. There's a sense of kind of danger or the possibility of an explosion at any moment. And Matt has this kind of zen quality to him where there's this kind of sense of stillness. With Christian in particular, he is such a transformative actor. Do you know what you're getting before the day that he shows up on set with this very specific sort of physicality, manner of moving and speaking? Like sure, that. you do. Um, you do. I mean, there's a certain evolution where even as you start shooting, you're chipping away and talking about what it's going to be. I mean, that these are really nice people. 
So it's not like I'm ever locked in, meaning it's not like I can't ever go, Christian, I'm a little worried about this, or I think we might be leaning on this. The early weeks of shooting are a kind of onset rehearsal where the results are getting shot. And you're also figuring a lot out about where the movie's going. I think the director's greatest fear is when an actor plays, is that it's a genie that they can't put back in the bottle. When I teach directing, it's one of the things I try and get directors not to be frightened, young directors to not be frightened about, is that you can put it back in the bottle. You just, you, what you can never replace, though, is the, the, the feeling of constraint an actor feels that you're not letting them play. And you can never replace the gifts that you will never get because you have them so stilted or you're not allowing them to provide you with surprises. I want to be sure to ask you as well just about the the racing in the movie. Is it a challenge to come up with the grammar for that to figure out the way you're going to shoot these cars? It's a lot of work. I mean, the part that's a lot of work, I have a lot of theories about everything. My theory about action is the same as the theory about musicals, which is that there should never be a musical number or an action set piece that doesn't also have character in it. And that where, where I think people get in trouble with action, sometimes they just shoot a lot of movement. They run three cameras. Like I rarely run multiple cameras. I, I, I run maybe two, usually just one. I know the purpose of each shot in the cut. So I go out to get that shot with knowing what has to happen in that shot to function in, in how I see it cutting together. The movie is Ford v. Ferrari. The director is James Mangold. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure, Mark. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash The Real.